Hello everyone, welcome to Forbes India Teenpreneurs, a weekly podcast series where we speak with the young and restless, literally, entrepreneurs and innovators under the age of 20. We'll dissect their enterprises, chart their journeys and highlight the perils and prizes of starting young. This is Naini Thakar and welcome to the fourth episode of Teenpreneurs. Sexual health and education is an issue that continues to be a big taboo. Be it parents or schools, few people are willing to openly discuss it. On today's show, we have 19-year-old Neyati Sharma, who took it upon herself to create awareness about the same through her youth-led non-profit organization, Pratisandhi Foundation. Currently a student at the University of British Columbia in Canada, she is juggling between online classes and leading a eight-member team. The foundation has conducted standalone seminars and workshops for close to 50 schools and universities across Delhi. Neyati, thank you so much for being with us on the show. Uh, why don't you start by telling us what inspired you to set up Pratisandhi in the first place? So, uh, when I was 16 years old, I took a gap year after my 10th grade and I went to Belgium on an exchange program. And while I was there, I was enrolled in school and, you know, living with a host family and so on for an entire year. And um, during that time, one of the days in school, uh, they had this survey about, you know, how sexually active all the adolescents were, how much they knew about contraceptives, um, you know, what they still needed to know and so on and so forth. It was fairly extensive. And while I was sitting there filling the survey, I was thinking, you know, nobody's ever asked me these things. Like, you know, not my family, not my doctors. Nobody has ever asked me all of these questions. And, you know, I was just thinking, why don't we talk about these things? And I sat and talked to my host sister about it. And I was like, you know, is this normal? Do you have these surveys all the time? She said, yeah, it's like an annual thing. And we got sexual health and sexual education um, classes back in sixth grade or so. So I was fairly surprised because I was like, that's fairly soon. (laughs) So once I came back, I, you know, I was talking to my friends and I realized so many youngsters had so many questions about sexual health, but they just didn't know who to go to when it came to, you know, asking people questions and not feeling judged, especially when they were minors, you know, they didn't really feel comfortable going to gynecologists and being like, Hey, I want to have sex. What do I do? You know, they had tons of questions, but they weren't getting answers. And the issue was that they were still going ahead with sexual activity. So that means they weren't even protecting themselves or they didn't know how to protect themselves. So I decided to create, you know, some sort of an online platform wherein all of these youngsters could sort of, at least seek answers to some questions. Um, When I started, it was just me and two, three other friends. So we knew we had like a limited ability to answer questions. But, you know, with the support of my mom, she's a gynecologist. So, you know, she helped us quite a bit with the medical facts and so on, because we wanted to make sure it was medically accurate as well. Um, And then gradually, you know, it sort of started snowballing and we started getting lots of inquiries. And so we started creating workshop modules that were you know, age specific, and we tried to make them as culturally sensitive as possible. And yeah, that's how we started sort of addressing youngsters at a much larger scale. So now we work with lots of schools, we work with lots of universities. So yeah, I mean, that's sort of how the whole need came out. Yeah. So you're working right now with private as well as public schools, is it? Uh, When it comes to um, these classes? 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, we haven't worked with a lot of public schools because there's a whole network. So you have to like reach higher authorities and it's, it's a whole system. Um, with private schools, it's slightly easier, but the challenges are slightly of, of a different nature. Um, I think universities have been the easiest to work with. We do have a lot of school students who've been interested in general. So even if we're not reaching them through schools, we've been able to reach them online or through, you know, independent workshops. Fair enough. What was it like for you um, to set up an entire foundation at the age of um, 17, 18? Um, how did you, you know, figure out the nitty gritties of setting it up in the first place? Um, there, my dad really helped. So, you know, I, I knew nothing about, first of all, I knew nothing about like running a nonprofit. I'm still learning. So, you know, it's really helpful. I also think it's great because I've been figuring out things on the way. And sometimes when things don't work for us, we make them work for us in a way that suits us. So, you know, we're creating our own rules, which has been really, really helpful because then we're not sort of in this one track mind that, hey, this is how it has to be. And this is how we're going to do things. So that has been really great, but we definitely had a lot of challenges. I think if I knew a year ago what I know now, things would have probably gone much more smoothly. You know, we could have avoided so many roller coasters, but I think those roller coasters were an important part of the conversation. You know, our volunteers continue to bring something new. We have volunteer surveys regularly to understand how our team is feeling. Um, when it comes to handling the compliances side of it and, you know, the governmental aspect of it with the registrations and everything, my dad has been like a rock when it comes to all that. I was like, dad, I need this done. I don't know how to do it. He's like, you know what? Don't worry. I will look into it and I will get back to you. Um, but he also makes sure that I'm learning. So, you know, when I had to get the organization registered, when we finally decided, hey, you know, let's make this a nonprofit organization and not just an initiative. Um, my dad made me call like 20 lawyers wow. and figure out what is the process? What are the different kinds of organizations? You know, what is the difference between a trust, a society and a section eight company? He made me figure all that out, even though in the end, he just asked somebody to do it for me, but he made sure I knew what I was doing and what, you know, I was signing up for. Can talk a little about, um, you know, any funding that you've got so far or if you're actively looking for funding for the organization? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we are um, scoping opportunities to sort of, you know, um, sustain ourselves a little bit better. Right now, our model has been and you know, we recognize that it is a little bit unsustainable, but we are definitely on the lookout for um, funding opportunities, any grants that are available. We did have um, a little bit of crowdfunding earlier this year, but because of COVID, you know, a lot of funds got diverted towards relief efforts. Um, and so, you know, that was impact that impacted our work a little bit. But uh, other than that, we've been sustaining um, by pocket funding or through crowdfunding. We also, um, you know, we were heavily engaged with uh, lots of college fests. So, you know, we would sell things like badges and posters and any minimal profit that we used to make from that used to go towards furthering our cause and, you know, paying for materials for conducting workshops and so on. So we've not received any um, large scale funding so far, but we're hoping that that is on the horizon for next year. Are you in talks with anyone uh, at the moment uh, for either funding, uh, like external funding or any form of grants, etc.? So we have been in touch with a few organizations and, you know, we've been trying to figure out what kind of opportunity works better for us. Right now, our focus is to um, sort of streamline our programs before we, you know, um, 
full-fledged go forward in the seeking grants. Um, so right now, that's just something that, you know, we've been considering. But there's a lot of different avenues. You know, we've been looking at the HCL grant. We've been in talks with um, partnering with potential organizations. We've also been looking at, um, you know, UNICEF and the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare. So, you know, there is a lot of opportunities out there. So um, definitely we're, we're hoping to apply for them. Great. Um, and currently you are a team of um, 80 people. So um, how are you uh, dealing with costs of that? And are they on a full time? Uh, like are they on a payroll? Are they volunteers? What's that like? So we are fully volunteer run. So everybody on my team, including myself, are all volunteers. So, you know, we're only a part of the cause because we feel that it is something that, you know, we want to be involved in and it's something that we're passionate about. So there are no employees. Um, and yeah, like I said, fully volunteer run. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, coming to the bit where you were juggling or rather are juggling uh, college <laughs> along with uh, running an 80 member team. Uh, what is it like? How are you doing it? Yeah. yeah. So um, it has been challenging for sure. But, you know, I feel that an, a really, really important element has been having a team that is very, very supportive. Right. So everybody who's associated with us, most of the students, um, I think I'm the only one who studies abroad. Um, and everybody else is, you know, maybe from the University of Delhi or different colleges around Delhi and CR. So everybody's been super supportive. So, you know, every time I couldn't pick up the slack, they would make sure that they were involved, or they were keeping track, or they were at least keeping tabs and, you know, just like keeping me updated. So in that sense, we've been really able to help each other. And they've also been super understanding about the fact that, you know, We've had days where I would send a full spam of messages at four in the morning because that was the only time I was awake. So I was like, hey, guys, we need to do this and this and this and this. And then, you know, the next morning they would read it and then gradually we would follow up. So sometimes it's it's been really, really hard. You know, fixing meeting timings was very hard because it was usually six in the morning for me um, because all of them had college. So, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a struggle, but I think we've been able to figure out a rhythm that works for us. Um, right now, I'm back in India, so it's been much easier. But now I'm struggling a little bit to keep up with college because it's online and it's in a different time zone. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, you know, you figure out these things and you figure out what works for you. Um, um, and has age ever um, not worked in your favor? Um, in terms of has it proven um, to be a disadvantage? <laughs> Um, I think yes and no. So, I mean, when it comes to, you know, initiating conversations and when it comes to especially convincing schools, convincing parents, you know, like you said, uh, sometimes people feel that, you know, they because they come from a place of more experience or because they're elder, they feel like they know better. In some cases, they do. Um, in some cases, they don't. We don't necessarily agree with them. So, um, you know, there's always room for disagreement, which is okay. But it has also been a slight advantage in the sense that, you know, we have been able to mobilize the youth. So, you know, that was really our goal, right? So I feel that, say, if I was, you know, a 40-year-old or a 30-year-old coming to 20-year-olds and saying, hey, guys, I relate to you, it would have probably been a much longer conversation vis-a-vis -vis somebody who's like 20 and going to 20-year-olds and being like, hey, guys, you know, I relate to you. And they feel like, yeah, you relate to me because we're in the same age bracket. We come from the same backgrounds. So definitely, you know, that is an aspect that helps. Um, sometimes it works to our disadvantage when we're working with different stakeholders. But I think that is also important. And I think 
gradually people are also starting to recognize the importance of mobilizing the youth i see lots of um, international organizations that are working in this domain who are trying to take you know trying to take the opinion of and be more cognizant of youth voices so definitely there is a slight shift happening in the narrative it's gradual but it's it's there and do you think um, you know um that youngsters or maybe even younger kids are more open to um you know learning about this and and they kind of want to understand this um uh, you know vis-a-vis uh, adults and and do you think that apart from workshops and such sessions for uh, children it's also necessary to train parents teachers principals and and you know those guys who are of a very different mindset especially in the indian cultural space Yeah definitely um i feel that you know every single student that i have spoken to i mean at least say 97% of them or so would you know come and say hey we want workshops on consent we want to know about stds we want to know that if i get pregnant where do i go and who is going to help me what does the law say about these things you know mm-hmm. what are the abortion laws should i find myself in this situation you know where do i get support what if i have a family background that is not going to support me then what happens right mm-hmm. um so there are so many questions that are unanswered and we you know we feel that we find students taking the first step mm-hmm. so um you know definitely there is more openness you know in terms of students wanting to get this kind of information mm-hmm. um i do think that teachers and parents need to be an important part of the conversation you can't leave them out of the conversation mm-hmm. um but i do think that it needs to be approached slightly differently okay. so we try to focus more on um adolescent education okay but you know when it comes to explaining that same thing to teachers or to parents mm-hmm. somebody who's a parent themselves will probably be able to connect with them a little bit more be able to relate to their hesitancies a little bit more mm-hmm. and you know understand that hey you know i'm a parent too i have children too and i get where you're coming from so right now i mean when you conduct these workshops can you run me through what a workshop would um, you know look like and i believe it will be different for school students as well as uh, versus uh, you know university students of course given their age yeah. so what is the age group that you target for schools um, and and how would a typical workshop look like all right So um what we do is so we've created lots of workshop modules we started with the youngest age group which was around 6 to 12 years or so wherein we talk about safe and unsafe touch so that's a fairly you know traditional conventional workshop um um very very essential for preventing child sexual abuse in any form right so um that's sort of where we start um and then we sort of go on to puberty which is you know for 12 to 15 year olds um then we have a lot of workshops that are sort of open age groups so you know anyone above the age of say 14 or 15 can attend them um we have recommended age groups but we feel that that kind of information is necessary for everybody so you know sometimes we have these workshops with college students as well and they you know end up taking something new from it so they sort of look like you know consent and communication um decision making when it comes to sexual behavior how to establish healthy boundaries um so those are the kind of topics we navigate in that um we're also developing other modules when it comes to you know values in your relationships human rights and sexuality so on so we're constantly expanding and i think for college students um we've tried to keep it more specific to the negative consequences of sexual behavior so not just you know the physical consequences but also the emotional consequences 
and um, specifically talking about the different contraceptive methods available to people um, there is a severe dearth of knowledge when it comes to you know methods other than condoms um, so you know making sure people know what is available to them what is accessible to them and what works best for them right obviously ultimately only a doctor can tell them what's perfect what's a perfect fit for them but having that information is a first step so um yeah and then also talking about what sexually transmitted diseases are how they are transmitted um how you can best protect yourself and minimize risk and we also talk a lot about um sti stigma so you know people with aids or people with different stis face a lot of stigma in society you know a lot of challenges when it comes to even in, when it comes to employment so you know just trying to bust some of those myths and make it a more inclusive society in general so those are the that's like the range of topics that we cover and um a traditional workshop would just sort of look something like um we have university students associated with us so they act as peer facilitators so our modules have been verified by professionals by psychologists by doctors and then all of these modules are then you know put into action by these university students um they receive training on alternate months as well and um yeah they will just go out you know they'll conduct a lot of activities i think the greatest um you know thing that has been working for us has been the relatability factor having university students on ground helps you know school students as well as university students feel like they're talking to somebody who gets them you know so there's there's no oh my god i can't say this because they feel that hey you've probably gone through the same thing yeah in terms of the family members of the students who are still going to um, school uh, considering how young they would be have you ever received or rather even schools for instance you know uh, these adults feeling a little uncomfortable with the fact that you know they uh, you know that that you're coming to their schools uh, or their universities and teaching ch- children about sexual health and education given you know the kind of taboo that is attached with it yeah uh definitely i mean we've had these challenges before um when it comes to schools mm-hmm. if any workshop um you know covers any information that is say sexually explicit in nature we make sure that we have parental consent okay. um but other than that like for example you know when it comes to workshops that talk about consent and communication when it comes to healthy boundaries and so on um you know the it applies to different areas of your life so it's not just sexual situations uh-huh. so you know we try to make sure that we keep a balance between these things um and so usually for those kind of workshops we don't have much of a challenge uh-huh. um the challenges really come when you're talking about contraception when you're talking about safe sex um and you know most of those issues are more relevant for university students um surprisingly we've not had too many challenges at the university level because you know it's it's all for people who are willing to attend the sessions right so so nobody's forcing anybody to come and sit in a session mm-hmm. so it's it's just an open session and if you want to know more you can join okay um so that is one aspect of it with schools definitely there's lots of hurdles um all the time um for certain workshops not so much so for example for safe and unsafe touch you'll rarely get any sort of backlash mm-hmm. um but you know for certain workshops we've had um you know principals come in and like stop the workshop in the middle and be like hey i don't want these girls to know about like consent or i don't want them to know about contraception mm-hmm. and this is something they need to learn after they're married um so you know we've also had lots of school students come up to us and say hey we want these sessions mm-hmm. but their school just wouldn't allow for it Okay. So um yeah there's there's a myriad of challenges that comes in. Yeah yeah yeah. 
Um, but one thing that has helped us is having, um, you know, having professionals on board has really backed up the validity of our work. So, you know, whenever we have, um, say, principals who are really, really saying that, you know, you're youngsters, what do you know? We try to make it very clear that, you know, everything we're talking about is a part of international guidelines. It's a part of, um, you know, the UN technical guidelines of, on sexual, sexuality education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of these modules have been verified. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, and currently, how many um, schools, universities and public schools are you working with? So we do have standalone workshops. Um, so we've done, we've worked with, I think, at least 50 different schools and universities um, for standalone workshops. We've also worked extensively with nonprofit organizations. So, um, you know, lots of NGOs, lots of shelters, lots of street schools um, that people have started, especially those that are youth led. Um, you know, we've been able to reach out to them fairly extensively. Okay, great. So what are your plans going forward for the foundation? So we are sort of coming up with a program for um, high school students. So we're looking to partner with schools across Delhi NCR for a more long-term program. It's going to be three to six months and it's going to consist of a series of workshops which are going to, you know, um, talk about everything under the spectrum of sexuality education. And it has been aligned with the United Nations Technical Guidelines for Sexuality Education. So we're hoping to contextualize that to the Indian context and then um, introduce it into schools. So we are going to be piloting that towards the end of this year on um, a more virtual medium and we hope to take it offline next year. And our hope is by 2022, we'll be able to reach at least 5,000 students through this program by partnering with at least 40 to 50 schools. Great. And would that be on a more, uh, you know, like a paid um, partnership with schools or anything like that, where you're generating income out of that? Is that uh, something that you're looking at? No, that's, um, that's not something that we have really worked out yet. We are working with different partner organizations and we're hoping that if we can get funding by then, um, you know, that would significantly reduce the cost because our hope is to be able to provide this education to schools and provide these services, especially to government schools, you know, free of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, private schools may be able to pay for it. But, uh, you know, with government schools, it's a huge challenge when introducing new programs. So we're hoping that once we have a more steady um, source of funding, we'll be able to implement it at a larger scale. Thank you so much, Neyati. This was a super insightful conversation. You are listening to Forbes India Teenpreneurs. We'll be back next week with another Teenpreneur. See you then. Today's show was edited and mixed by Manswini Kaushik. If you liked the show, don't forget to share and subscribe. Also check out our other podcasts, a fortnightly series on our latest cover story called Inside Forbes India and conversations about business, economics and books on From the Bookshelves of Forbes India.